Recently, I got the opportunity to interview Matthew Sullivan on how his company, Quantum RE, is helping people release the equity in their home using a system based on the blockchain. This is the same technology used by Bitcoin. He's had a fascinating career before this, even working on ventures with Richard Branson. Enjoy. So, hello, Matthew. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Ben, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. So you're the founder and CEO of Quantum RE. I want to hear about that. But first, tell me a little bit about your background. I would describe myself as um, congenitally unemployable. Um, But I remember, funnily enough, the first feelings of entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. which is this sort of rising feeling that sort of starts in your mid-stomach area um, as you feel yourself sort of rebelling against uh, employment. Um, And I was a stockbroker at the time in the late 80s. And even though I was busy whizzing around the Far East, you could feel that, you know, one didn't want to be part of this overall enterprise. One wanted to be in control of it. And one of the guys that was my early bosses uh, when I was a stockbroker was this incredibly entrepreneurial chap. And he set up his own business just, I think, 89, 90, something like that. And he ended up jumping out of a hot air balloon built by a certain Swedish hot air balloon pilot called Per Lindstrand. Uh, and this, this my, my boss and friend um, ended up getting the world high altitude hang gliding record. So he built this uh, relationship and this friendship with uh, Per Lindstrand as a result. And he sort of fast forward a number of years. And, and uh, he wrote a letter to Richard Branson. We were working in um, Kensington at the time. He wrote mm-hmm. a letter to Richard saying, Dear Richard, we own Lindstrand balloons because we ended up buying Lindstrand balloons. Would you like to fly around the world in a hot air balloon? Because it's the last great challenge. And uh, I remember the letter came back from Richard and it said, Dear Rory, why not yours, Richard? So that was really the sort of beginning. I mean, I'd, I'd gone from stockbroking. I worked with uh, Rory for a number of years. But just being sort of launched into this distilled entrepreneurial environment. So we ended up working for very closely with Richard for a number of years on all sorts of different products. And then after that, having been primed and uh, you know thrown into the entrepreneurial pool, very much at the deep end, you know, my vision was extended and my horizons were elongated, and I really moved on to uh, a whole range of different enterprises. And I think at that point in t- 2000, we had the internet. Yeah. Um, and so I you know got involved with an internet startup, and we raised some capital there, and we got involved with some sort of interesting cutting edge technologies. But yeah, really, the background is really a case of just doing interesting and exciting things um, where one thing leads to another. Do you think being around other people who are doing that as well helps, that it rubs off on you? It does. Well, you've got to be very careful who you work with and who you surround yourself with because it has the opposite effect as well. And, And there's the saying, you know, you are the effectively the sum or the product of the people that you surround yourself with. And that's absolutely true. Um, But, you know, seeing people do things, Mm. first of all, takes the mystery away from it. In other words, you think, I can see how this is done. So therefore, you know, I may not be as brilliant as this person, but at least I now know what the steps are. So I'm going to have a go at that. 
Yeah, that's true. I often find I go through a few different stages uh, before I start looking up to people doing interesting things. Uh, one of them is normally jealousy or hatred for, for, for them. How can they be doing all these exciting things? Why aren't I doing that sort of thing? But eventually you come around to actually saying, well, they're not. They're just going ahead and doing something interesting. They're doing something that they've seen and, and they don't see any barriers. It just brings me back to, uh, I was listening to your podcast, Hooked on Startup, and I, I like to go back to the beginning of, <laughs> of uh, podcasts and uh, listen to what people are like in the beginning. <laughs> yes, yeah, it got worse, I tell you. Yes. <laughs> but there was someone you interviewed that on there, and I don't remember his name, I will look it up and put it in the show notes, but he... Um, he was recording from a garage and he helped people yes. do interesting things like get married yes. in interesting places or, or just, you know, if they want to do something fascinating and different and interesting, he would help them do that. He would find out how to do that. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. And he was talking about, well, you've just got to do these things. Nothing is standing in your way. You've just got to keep trying and trying and trying. But you're right. And I know what you mean, though, when you say about this sort of this sort of hatred of people. You think, well, you know, how did you manage to pull that off? You, you've inherited money mm-hmm. or clearly that you've you haven't done this through your own capability but then but and i think part of it really is just this desire to do stuff yourself yeah. in other words to say well i, I can do that and, and i want to do it better um and it's this sort of constant process of um the challenge isn't it you know mm-hmm. of, of seeing something and thinking i want to build that because not only i want to build it because i want to say haha i've got the same as you but i think i can do it better yeah or it was there's there's that intellectual challenge there's that um uh, you know constant sort of process of renewal but but you're right you know the other thing i learned is just you have to do things and um, the greatest entrepreneurs um and the most successful people are people that do stuff they don't talk about it they don't you know cogitate deliberate they do yeah and it makes a huge difference and i think that's that's where a lot of their success comes in is that they're willing to put in and it's not even necessarily the hours but they're willing to put in the work to get things done. And it's incredibly important. It's, it's work, but it's commitment. Yeah. That's the critical thing. I have seen and I've worked with some of the best people who are incredibly hardworking. Um, they put enormous numbers of hours in, but they lack commitment. They won't make a decision. Mm-hmm. They won't. They can't move things to the next stage because they're, there's a whole host of reasons. They're either afraid or they're, they're kind of happy where they are. There's... Um, you know, thousands of pages of psychology that you can sort of layer onto this. But, um, you know, I think the entrepreneurial mindset is this just drive forward and, and the confidence that you have in yourself yeah. uh, that if you, if you get up to a, um, if you get to a particular point, you will be able to figure out what to do next. Um, just reading your, your history, um, I noticed you're a helicopter pilot. Um, I'm just interested in how, how that came to be and, and what do you fly? Where'd you go? How'd you use that? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't flown for a while. So I, I, I'm desperate to fly because I now live in California. I moved here about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the great thing about California, if you're a helicopter pilot, is every day is perfect. You know, every day yeah. is a flying day with clear blue skies. And, but of course, you know, I haven't flown at all because I've been too busy trying to build these companies. But I started flying, um, I, you know, I think 20-something years ago. Um, and the reason... I started was I always wanted to be a helicopter pilot. Mm. I used to dream about helicopters. I used to dream about motorcycles, helicopters, um, and, and basically anything that combines, you know, oil leaks, moving parts, and gas. <laughs> um, and um, I never was interested in flying planes. I went up a few times in a friend's plane, but just found it uh, uh, dull. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. there was no. It's like you go up, you. You know, you trim it out and you fly, and then you can fall asleep, and it 
you know, still flies. Um, but uh, one of the companies we set up when I was uh, working um, closely with Virgin Group was Virgin Helicopters. And we had this idea um, to run this sort of shuttle between a sort of landing spot, the, heli, the helipad at, mm-hmm. uh, by Chelsea and, and Heathrow Airport. Um, and so we had, we bought this company, we called it Virgin Helicopters. Um, and I was just, I just thought this is fantastic. I'm now going to learn. So every weekend I would drive from Tunbridge Wells um, up to um, High Wycombe. Um, and I would sit in this little sort of, you know, compressed Coke can called a Robinson R22, where you're sort of, you know, elbowing your mm. instructor to try and uh, make enough space to fly it. Um, so I did 30 hours in an R22, and I swore I would never get back in one again. And then I immediately transitioned onto uh, Jet Rangers, which is the big sort of, you know, proper helicopter with lots of whirring noises and turbine sounds. Um, so um, I'm rated on Jet Rangers, R22, R44, and then I discovered this thing called a Hughes 500. Mm. The Hughes 500. I've heard of that one. Which is the equivalent of the, the Porsche or the Ferrari of the helicopter world. So it's this sort of two plus two, um, basically mainly engine and blades. Um, And it's, you know, incredibly versatile and um, uh, agile uh, and just huge fun to fly. So then I just spent all my time um, out of Red Hill and Biggany Hill Airport uh, airfields flying those. You know, I I haven't flown for ages. So now I'm, you know, I'm desperate to get back into it again. Thank you for reminding me. (laughs) I think they're fascinating. I've always loved helicopters since I was young. So maybe I I need to find a way to buy a helicopter company and uh, start that process. I just want to touch on on your podcast. I'm biased because I'm interested in podcasts. um, And yours is called Hooked on Startup. And you've got, uh, I think you're on your 59th episode. Um, How's that going? Why did you start that? And then, then tell me a little bit about your setup. Well, the, the podcast really was, some of it was seeing other people do it, but there's this group that I'm a member of called METAL, which stands for um, Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what an alpha leader is uh, or what an alpha is, but um, we meet up every Saturday in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people that are part of the group are there are some hugely talented, successful entrepreneurs from all industries and all walks of life. There are you know artists and um, you know, uh, you know, musicians and uh, you know, business leaders of, of all. I think Nolan Bushnell, who's the founder of Atari, he's one of the members. And uh, uh, Brock Pierce, who's mm-hmm. the founder of Bitcoin, he's one of the members as well. Right, right. So, um, but what I wanted to do is, is just uh, um, have more time to speak to these people. And I went to a podcasting conference, um, which just happened to be up the road from where I live. And I sort of popped in because I got a, you know, the, the, it was a free ticket. Um, and th- the concept of actually doing a podcast, what was interesting there was that you can literally spend an hour talking to some of these incredibly interesting people and they are willing to give you their time. And that's what these people told me. So I thought, well, I will give it a go. Um, so I, you go through the process and well, what am I going to talk about and who, would, who could possibly be interested in what I have to say? And then you realize actually the best way to solve that problem is to get them to do the talking. And um, uh, so what I love is startups and the entrepreneurial vision and the excitement. So these are all entrepreneurs. So I'm sure um, I could find a, a few people that would be willing to have a chat. Um, and what I found was after the initial sort of you know inability to speak um, uh, and feeling that everything has to be overproduced, what happens is you end up having a natural conversation. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and you realize that there are a huge number of things that you have in common with these people and that they're not unapproachable. They're not um, sitting on their, you know, in, in Olympian detachment. Um, they have gone through the same processes, thoughts, fears, and, you know, as, as I have. So, um, you know, the conversation, uh, you know, I found it much easier than I thought it would do and, you know, far more enjoyable. So, um, as I said, but the problem is that I ended up being so busy doing the, the project that I'm working on now, which started about n- nine months ago, that I was doing two a week and I was loving really? every moment. Right. So I, so I, I haven't done any for about sort of six or seven months or so. Yeah, and it's it's hard. It, it does take a little bit of commitment. I mean, I, I probably over prepare for for various podcasts and interviews and things like that. Um, but actually, going back to what you were saying about getting access to people, I found it's probably the easiest way to get to talk to people that would be difficult to otherwise because because it's in their interest. They may get some promotion out of it, some backlinks for their website and something like that. But also, people do like talking about themselves. They do like sharing what they've been up to and what they've been doing. And I, I find that fascinating. And, and as you said, you don't need to you don't need to talk too much. You just need to ask some good questions and, and set things in motion. No, it's it's. Um, I think it's it's podcasting is one of these very underrated areas where uh, I think it is starting to grow now. A lot of people are starting to recognise that it's actually got quite a lot of utility. But um, it's just a lovely medium, really. Once you get into it, um, it is. And I, I completely agree that that the people when you say. Um, you know, Ben, would you like to be on my podcast? I'm on a podcast. I go, I would be delighted. I would be honored. Yeah, yeah. And he go, well, um, okay, great. <laughs> Obviously, you haven't listened to any of my podcasts. <laughs> but, um, and so it still has that sort of cachet, doesn't it? It still has that, um, um, it's almost like, would you like to come on my TV show? Yeah, exactly. You're a, you're a broadcaster at that point. What's not to like? Um, so what's your, just just brief if anyone's interested, what's your setup? How do you record the, I notice you actually do yours in video as well. Um, a lot of the new ones now that I've seen. Um, so what's your setup? How do you record things? Yeah, the key thing for me really is, is um, I'm not in my studio right now, but I've, I've built a studio at home, mm. um, which involves spending about $20 at Amazon buying these uh, um, sort of acoustic foam tiles. Oh, is that what walls. they are? I was wondering, they look quite um, quite stylish. They, they look good, but, but they're really effective. So you try and get the sound deadening right, first mm. of all, so you don't sound uh, like you're, you're sitting inside a, um, you know, a, a, a goldfish bowl. Um, and then you just spend a little bit of money on a good microphone um, and a good thing to sort of hold the microphone mm. so it's pointed at your face and a decent um, uh, uh, camera. Um, and also put it on a tripod as well, because the number mm. of times where people interview you and they get quite excited and they start sort of rocking the table. So, you know, you, you end up getting seasick watching these people because the screens on their yeah. um, on their laptops are sort of wiggling all over the place. Um, but it's not expensive. But the great thing about buying stuff, it's a bit like if you play golf or you go diving. It's not actually about the golf or the diving. It's about the stuff you can buy. Um, and, and, you know, the great thing about a podcast is once you've made that commitment to your $150 microphone or your $100 um, webcam, it's like you've, you've got the stuff. So now you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does, it makes a big difference. But it's amazing the difference in quality um, if you have a good mic and a good setup. And I use Zoom to record um, the, the videos. Um, I met a really good guy who's good at chopping the videos up and editing them and um, you can get some really good background music mm. um, for nothing and you can add that and, and you can spend a bit of money producing it and it looks and sounds professional. 
Yeah, no, it certainly works, and you, you've got some good guests on there. No, thanks for that. Um, so back to Quantum RE. This is the company that allows people to unlock money in their home without remortgaging. Now, when yes. I when I, I was reading about the company, I was quite interested in how that worked. Now, I understand the purpose of maybe as people have paid down their mortgage, they've got some equity in them, they've got money in it that they could perhaps use to buy other things. But usually you have to get other loans, uh, maybe yeah. remortgage, it could be quite expensive, you may not be allowed. Can you tell me about your idea and how that differs from that process? Well, the, the idea came from, so this is a, this is a blockchain, it's a cryptocurrency business. So we mm. started this uh, almost a year ago. Uh, the primary driver for this um, was that we had been looking at blockchain and cryptocurrency for about 18 months. Um, you know, like most people, we didn't really understand it. Mm. At that point, it hadn't really got the momentum. So it was still very much, um, you know, behind the scenes. Would you mind, what, uh, before we go on, would you mind explaining blockchain to, to the listeners and, and to me? I, I do understand it a little bit, but maybe a little primer would help. Well, we've all heard of Bitcoin. Yeah. And the reason that Bitcoin's in, in the news is because it's a new type of investment and people are making, you know, millions and millions of dollars and um, on Bitcoin and people are turning into overnight millionaires. So everyone's very much intrigued as to what Bitcoin is. But you know, most people don't understand what Bitcoin is. And really, it is a, um, it's a piece of code that is cryptographically protected. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's very difficult to crack that code. And it can be used as a way of storing value. And, and if you have a piece of the code that allows you to receive that um, store of value, rather than transferring money via pounds or dollars or using Venmo or PayPal, mm -hmm. you can send value to somebody using the internet um, through this sort of secure process where someone has an electronic wallet and they can hold these Bitcoin mm -hmm. and those Bitcoin, they can then give them to somebody else. So there's that sort of transference of value. So they're a bit like an electronic form of money. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin itself has to be um, the the transference or the record of the change of ownership of one piece of value to another has to be recorded somewhere. Mm. Now, it's not recorded on someone's um, sort of centralized computer. It's not recorded on a central database. Um, it's uh, recorded on a, um, a blockchain. And what a blockchain is, as the name suggests, it is a series of blocks. Each of those blocks uh, contains a certain amount of data. So if you can imagine you've got your children's sort of toy where you've got, say, four or five blocks, mm -hmm. you know, one in line and, you know, in line with each other, mm -hmm. each of those blocks contains, um, let's say, a megabyte of information. Um, and in that information, it, can, it has details of what's in the previous block mm -hmm. and, and what's in the block in front of it. Right. So it's sort of daisy chain effect. And all that information is hashed, and a hash is a way of taking data and scrambling it using a cryptographic code, so that unless you have the, uh, that, that code, you, you can't figure out what's inside that, uh, that block. So the blockchain is this chain of blocks of information that um, are protected, because if you change one element of that blockchain, then everything in that blockchain then yeah. becomes invalid. Because they're all dependent so on, one, on the next one. And it's one. not like a mm. traditional database where you could sort of sneak in and change a couple of fields yeah. and no one would, would be uh, any the wiser. So cryptocurrencies and other um, 
mechanisms like that set on top of a blockchain because the blockchain provides a layer of truth mm. and we use words like immutability uh, which is a very posh way of saying you can't change yeah. it um, so if you've got this layer of truth this sort of database that allows you to record transactions in a way that can't be changed mm -hmm. then that means that the way that it's set up it's distributed across multiple nodes or multiple computers and really anybody, um, if you download the software, you can download a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain. And if you really want to fill your computer with all of that stuff so that you have no room for pictures or videos, but you can get an entire copy of that blockchain. Now, the more people that have copies of that, then the more difficult it is to actually change it because yeah. then everybody has to change it. So we had this concept of consensus where if you want to change the blockchain, then a certain number of people who have these nodes all have to agree. So in, in very simple terms, it's really exciting because um, you've finally got this, this layer of truth that you can put into the internet to allow transactions to happen where people actually believe that they're going to happen. Um, and because of that, people are much more confident about transferring value and, and ownership. And then these tokens or these uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and all the other thousands of different cryptocurrencies, they sit on top of this and they enable value to change hands and they enable things to happen mm -hmm. in a way that is trusted and, and effectively um, stored in a way that, that can't be changed. Traditionally, a bank would manage this process for you. So the bank would be would govern the, the transaction, would, would govern the audit, and they would be the source of truth. So what you're saying, yes. in this sense, everyone holds that source of truth. And it cannot be changed by any one person because, because using mathematics, they're all tied together. And so it exactly. makes it a lot more difficult. But then things like Bitcoin, which I think people conflate blockchain and Bitcoin together because they, they kind of came out together. So Bitcoin uses that idea... Um, to allow people to transfer a value. And, and the value could be anything. It doesn't have to be money. It could be, um, you know, text transactions, I guess, email or anything like that where you want to prove an audit trail. It's data, isn't it? It's really just, yeah. I mean, the data can represent anything. Okay. You're absolutely right. And what people, people do, you know, blockchain equals Bitcoin, Bitcoin equals blockchain. I mean, yeah. the, the, you know, Bitcoin is, as you rightly say, it sits on top of the blockchain. But the reason the blockchain itself is a really interesting concept is it can be applied to all sorts of things outside of currency. So in other words, if you take healthcare, for example, so if you have all of your records on a blockchain, yeah, that's true. That hmm. blockchain sits and it's independent. So when you're talking about the bank, think about the bank. The bank is a centralized uh, uh, process. And the reason we trust banks is because of the regulatory layers that sit around the banks. Um, but as we've seen from centralized um, uh, companies like Equifax, for example, uh, you know, last year, things can go wrong. Those centralized errors um, can be can be hacked. And um, and the way that the blockchain works is it's much more protected because there's many more layers of, of, of cryptography. Um, but the blockchain is much more useful than just a provision of, of money because it can be applied to all sorts of different industries mm. where you need that that ability to track um, uh, transactions or to track data management. Yeah, I'm starting to see that a lot at conferences and um, certainly the search volumes on the internet for that particular keyword. It's, it's going up, people are interested in it. There's a lot of ways that people are finding it, using it. Now, 
Thanks for that explanation, by the way. That's yes. great. Um, so going back to Quantum RE, how are you, how are you using that technology to help people um, release equity? Well, the, the big issue with cryptocurrency, as you've highlighted, is people don't really understand it yet. Um, at its peak, about $750 billion worth of cryptocurrencies were changing hands. Really? Um, and so the issue is, what is a cryptocurrency based on? Mm. Is it based on um, just the fact that there are more buyers and sellers? Is it based on some network effect? It's the value of a cryptocurrency is based on things that people are not normally aware of. They're not um, they're not used to. They don't really understand it. So the ability for uh, for cryptocurrencies to get mass market adoption is kind of held back because people really say, I don't understand it, it's too volatile for me. Um, and um, yeah. it, when it starts getting a bit more stable and when I understand it, then the true value of the technology will be able to come through. So we saw this about a year ago. We said, well, how do we fix this problem? So you've got the amazing attributes of a cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's efficiency. It's a bit like bringing the internet to the travel industry. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, so in other words, it's ideally suited. Um, but the thing that people don't, you know, what what is holding it back? And it's the fact that a cryptocurrency is not actually based on anything of intrinsic value. Well, why don't we fix that? So let's look at what has intrinsic value. And, and the thing that probably is the, the most understood asset class is real estate or, or property. And if we say, well, if, is there a way that we can marry real estate with cryptocurrency so that we can create a cryptocurrency that has all the benefits of and the efficiencies of, of this new type of value transfer mechanism, you know, that flies around the world, doesn't know borders, doesn't know, you know, is, is unaware of, of banks and centralized um, points of contact. Yeah. Um, but if we married it with real estate, then it would have intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So in yeah. other words, people would say, I trust this because if each one of my cryptocurrencies or if each one of my tokens is backed by this piece of real estate, then I know that it's not going to go below or shouldn't go significantly below the value of the real estate because that's my intrinsic value. So we, we're creating this um, entire platform that does that, that takes and issues cryptographic tokens that sit on the blockchain and where each one of those tokens is represented by real estate assets. And then the next question is, well, what type of real estate assets should you use? Because mm -hmm. you want them to be fairly predictable. It needs to be scalable. Because if people come along and say, here's lots of money, I want lots of these tokens, you need to be able to put that money to work quickly. And, and is there a way that we can create some sort of social benefit? Because just being a financial transaction is one thing, but if there's a way of actually leveraging what we're doing to get people to understand the benefits of cryptocurrency, that would be that would be even better. So an asset class that we looked at about four years ago through something completely unrelated was the ability to buy fractions of people's homes that mm. they paid off by paying down their mortgage. And this is something you mentioned earlier. So if you own a home, you spend you know the first few years of your mortgage primarily paying interest, and then and then it sort of begins to sort of flip, and you pay more of your um, the the outstanding principal down. So after you know ten years or so, you really begin to start eating into the amount that you owe the bank, mm -hmm. and that translates into equity. And also, what happens is in an ideal world, the value of your house goes up. So yeah. over time you might end up actually owning half your house and only having a mortgage on 
the other half. But the question then, well, that's all really good, but how do I get my hands on the money? Well, the answer is you go back to the bank and say, you know, this house bit that I own, this half, I'd like to borrow more money from you so that I can actually have access to it. And the banks go, yes, of course, as long as you qualify. And there might be a few charges involved um, and there might be a slightly higher interest rate than, than you're used to because of, you know, because of everything. Um, and, and so then again, as a homeowner, you're forced to go back and do you qualify? Mm. You may not have a, so you could be in a situation where you've got half a million pounds worth of equity and because you're not working, you're not able to borrow money. Yeah. So you're, so what we do is we say we will buy that piece of equity from you. We won't lend you money. We will sign a contract with you and you say when you sell your house, a piece of that house, you will pay us back the money that we've advanced you. But the way we make money is we share in the appreciation. So if your house goes up in value, we want a piece of that as well. So that's that's the um, that's the contract we make with you. So it's a we buy a percentage of the future appreciation of your home. Yeah, which makes sense to people. I think people can understand that you're buying a tangible asset that if you if uh, they make money later, that you should make a small proportion of that because you're giving them the, the money now. And I think I, I watched a little video that you had on the site that also if for some reason the, the house loses value, then then you, you lose out on that as well. Um, but essentially most most should go up, um, generally speaking. And that's the idea. It's a partnership. I yeah. mean, a banking or a debt relationship is one way. You owe me the money. If your house goes down in value, tough, you know, tough, tough luck. We still owe, you still owe us the money. Yeah. So ours is much more of a partnership. So it can go up, it can go down. But what that enables us to do really is create this sort of sort of sausage machine um, where we can go to people and say, um, would you like to get access to the capital or the value in your home that's locked up? but without having to take on more debt. Mm -hmm. and, and this is not new in the United States. Um, over the last seven or eight years, there have been a, a small number of companies that have been very successful at this, but in a very small way. And the reason for that is that the asset itself um, is very illiquid and doesn't cash flow. Now it's illiquid because if you buy a share of someone's future appreciation, you have to wait until they sell the house. Now, they could be in a house for 30 years. Yeah. So you're kind of like, you know, you know, hanging around for 30 years <laughs> waiting for your money back. But, and in the meantime, guess what? It's not cash flowing. So that would be okay as long as you were getting some sort of rental income. But mm -hmm. because they own the house, you, you have to wait. Now, we solve that problem because if you create a, an, a, a mechanism that allows the, the liquidity to happen at the token level, if the token represents that pool of assets, then people can buy and sell the token because the token is backed by those assets. So it's almost the same as buying the assets themselves. So the token creates the, the liquidity mechanism. But meanwhile, we can go out there and we can say to homeowners, you know, here is a way of unlocking that value without having to, to go back and increasing your debt. And the team that we brought on to run this whole program for us has is one of the few companies that was very successful at this in the United States, mm. uh, and they originated over a, you know two hundred and fifty million dollars worth of these assets over a eight or nine year period. Um, it's a very nuanced business, but our plan is to really significantly grow that because what we're doing is we're tapping into two markets. One is the um, the cryptocurrency holder who wants something that 
he knows is actually backed by some intrinsic value. And the other market is the real estate investor who wants to get into cryptocurrency investments, but also wants to get into real estate investments. So we, we're sort of at, we're at the center of all these different um, uh, sort of you know, requirements. Yeah, I noticed um, looking at the video as well, I, I think this seems like a good idea. If you owned a home, uh, which you were then renting out as flats, um, then it seems like it could be an ideal win because you're still getting the rental income, but you can also get this cash from um, releasing some of the equity in the home. So, so that could then allow you to buy another property at some point, put some more equity into that and do the same thing again. So you get more rental income. And what you're doing is you're not increasing your overall debt. Yeah. In other words, you're, and the good thing, as far as the banks are concerned, they like what we're doing mm. because what we're doing is we're providing you as the homeowner or as the landlord, you, we're providing you with more cash flow. So we're effectively buying some of your the future value of your asset. And we don't compete with the banks there because no, we don't impair on the bank's security. Um, and we're not increasing the debt. So we're giving you liquidity. We're giving you cash flow. So that means you're much more likely to be able to pay off your um, your loan, and and because you're not you're not borrowing more money, you're not going to get into deeper debt. No, it, it seems very good. Can you just talk to me about one of the challenges you faced along the way of developing this business? Well, there's there are a, a huge number of moving parts. Mm. It is a symphony of technology, marketing, regulatory compliance jurisdiction it is um it is i think that's the best way of describing it It truly is a symphony of all these different um uh you know uh, layers Mm -hmm. that needs to happen and like any decent symphony when it's playing well it sounds fantastic but the moment you get you know the the uh, the violinist who's uh you know off key or the flautist is getting it wrong it 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 sounds awful and it all goes terribly wrong so so the the challenge which is an ongoing challenge is um not only to manage what we have but also we have to bring on new components um and we're dealing with a number of regulatory layers a number of uh, um you know government bodies over here um and they're, they're very serious they're very you know uh you know grown-up entities and we're in a an area that is is highly regulated so it's very exciting and um, but at the same time you know one has to be uh, very aware of the environment that's, that, that one is operating in yeah sure but i would imagine that as you're near the forefront of this or at the forefront of it that a lot, the challenges that you're pushing against and coming through the other side of that's going to give you a good lead, whereas it's not something where you're just uh, looking at the uh, people in, in, who've already done it before and you're just following in their footsteps. This is something new where you're pulling together lots of different things based on maybe a, a, an existing idea of how people have capital. You know, you're using something quite conventional, but you're doing it in a different way and allowing people to, to move money in a different way and open up different things. You know, if it pays off, you're ahead of it. You're, you're, you're there and ready so when it explodes. You're right, and there are there are significant barriers to entry, and I'm not just saying that to try and put off any competition <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> I wouldn't bother if I were you guys. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but it is um, because there are so many different skill sets, so many different mm. requirements. You know, it is just it is uh, you know technology and regulation don't normally go hand in hand. Um, uh, well, they do in the sense that technologists or or people at the forefront of these types of technological developments are not normally. The sort of guys who have spent years in a regulated environment. So, um, and it's bringing those two together. But uh, uh, I mean, you're right. The 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 
positive is that there are lots of uh, barriers to entry. The downside is once you, if you are the pathfinder, because everything that we're doing is public, mm-hmm. it's audited, it's publicly filed, it's transparent, because that's that's how the business has to be. We're effectively telling everybody, hey guys, this is how you do it, yeah. by the way. So, you know, um, but the, the, the challenge there is that you've actually got to figure out how to put these pieces together. So it's, um, it's, it's the equivalent of delivering a Rubik's cube that you've all sort of screwed up to someone saying, here it is, all you have to do is unscramble it. Um, so it's not, you know, we, we we still feel we're a little bit ahead of the game there. Yeah, and I think I think it is. It's just you've got to pe- keep pushing, even even once it's it's working really well. It's to keep pushing it forward, keep developing it, because whenever you see um, new industries grow, then you'll see lots of people leap in behind, and some may even overtake um, the incumbent in that area. But you know, you've just got to keep inventing, and and that leads me on to: is there anything you're looking at driving into next, or is this really where you're at at the moment, sort of pushing on Quantumari? Well, no, this is, this is, I think for me, this is the end game because it almost feels like everything I've done mm. over the last, you know, 20, 30 years is, is like an education for this moment. Right. Um, um, and I don't mean that in a sort of glib way because it, it, it's, it's the training in terms of, you know, the financial, the technological, because we made mistakes decades ago when we were involved in the internet startup. You know, I had a big team of people and, you know, we went through a lot of money very quickly and d- delivered very little. Mm. Thankfully, it's the other way around this time. We've delivered a lot with very little capital. So there's some learning there. Um, all the work with, that we did with our crowdfunding company over here and the fund that we launched, dealings with broker-dealers and the SEC, all of that. Um, so so I don't, I see this as being the focal point and this business has so much ability to grow on an international basis um, and, and li- you know, working in the environment in the cryptocurrency world where it's still at that very early stage, yeah. there's still an enormous amount of excitement um, happening on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So it's it's by no means a sunset industry. So um, I think our business has the capacity, if we get it right, to, to be a major player. And um, the market is so big that we, mm. um, we should be able to compete and continue to c- keep that edge. Um, just before we finish, would you would you give the listeners two pieces of advice, um, marketing or otherwise, uh, that you've learned along the way, something where they can take that into their business and, and use it? The thing that always works for me is is to understand, um, and this is having spent an enormous amount of money, marketing is a science. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is not throw stuff at the wall and hope because nothing sticks. In other words, unless you do the work beforehand, unless you unless you understand the dynamics, the metrics, the numbers, the audience, do the work, segment your audience, understand who your customers are, um, and, and you know, prepare and put that work in, and don't hope that uh, that your marketing or that your your you know your business strategy will work in the absence of that. And so the, the, the biggest piece of advice I would give, because one of the questions you asked was about marketing, is, mm. is um, just understand and, uh, you know, and do the work to figure out how you would calculate your return on investment. In other words, if you spend this much money, how do I get a return on investment? How do I quantify it? Is it through clicks? Is it through telephone calls? Is it through knocks on the door? Is it through customers? But, but, and once you begin to understand those metrics, then you can start working backwards and and, and uh, you know, create your campaign. But 
so many people, I've seen so many people who just say, we should go to that conference or we should put an advert in that magazine or we should spend money on these um, um, you know, adverts without understanding what the outcome is or how to measure that. Mm. And I'm sure that's something that, that you come across um, as well. I do, yeah. And I, I often find that it's, that it's not that people don't understand that they need to do that and it's the right thing to do. It's more that they they're almost don't fully understand all the numbers and what they should be looking at. And it's such a dark area for them. It's such an area where they could dive in and, you know, look at all their Google Analytics stats and thinking, you know, just the terms ROI for some people put them off, just numbers in general. But actually, when you break it down, you don't need to know many things. And I think that's that's what I hopefully help with and I'm, I find fascinating. When people actually get the grips with, once they know just a few basic numbers, they can really start to work uh, their marketing better and just getting a good feedback loop. So they try a campaign, they know what they want to expect out of it, and then they can look at the results afterwards and then feed that back into the beginning again. And it's, it then becomes quite a simple process and I might even add quite fun sometimes. Yes, exactly. And it is, it's not just number crunching, it's, it's doing the work to understand um, you know, what your business is, which sort of leads on to my other piece of advice, which is to be honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. And that sounds very, you know, sort of California psycho babble. But what that actually means is, you know, and no one else knows if you're trying to pull the wool over your own eyes. <laughs> so in other words, you might have an idea. And as you go through the idea, it might start out thinking this is the best thing that anyone's ever invented. But as you develop it, you begin to think, hang on a second, this isn't, this isn't going to work. But you continue anyway because you're either embarrassed or because of any other, sort of, you know, name a hundred different reasons. Mm. But you know intuitively that this is not the right way forwards. So have the courage to pull the plug at that point. And that leads on to another sort of subset of that where treat your business as a project rather than your business. So until it is successful and you have a team and you have momentum, it's a project. Mm -hmm. It's not your company, it's a project. And that project may fail, in which case throw it away and start again. Um, but so many people are wedded, they get a good idea, um, they explore it, it's not gonna work, but they continue flogging that dead horse. And it just ends up in tears. You, you lose your money. You lose your investors' money. You lose credibility. Where if you realized it was going wrong and you treated it as a project and you say, hang on, this isn't working. Let's pull back. It, you know, it's about learning to, uh, you know, it's not failure. This is a whole different subject. But it's just that term. Um, um, it's being agile. It's, it's being able to understand well, yeah, um, wasn't it, um, I might get this wrong, but uh, the, the product Twitter, um, that started off as a different product um, to begin with. Exactly. I can't remember exactly what it was. I will try and find the story and put it in the show notes. But I remember that they, the company were working on one product. It didn't really work. And so they flipped it into something else. And ultimately that became Twitter. Um, and they didn't know that it would become Twitter. Certainly its success was not something they predicted. But what helped them be successful is they weren't wedded to that particular project. They said, that's not really working. It's not taking off. Let's try something else. And you're right. And I think the story, again, I wish I could remember because it was something that, it, but it pivoted and pivoted and pivoted mm. and morphed and changed and evolved and um, uh, into something that is obviously the success it is today. So yeah, you've got me thinking about that as well. <laughs> I will find it. I will find it, I promise. Where can we find you online, Matthew? Uh, our website is quantumre, so it's Q-U-A-N-T-M-R-E 
Com. Mm -hmm. So all of the information, the, the, the site at the moment is a very basic site, but that will all change in the next three to four weeks. So it will spring into life. Um, and then anything you need to, to find out about us is there. You can drop us a line. You can contact us. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd love to um, love to answer any questions you might have. Excellent. Thank you. And I, I must recommend if anyone um, was still left a little bit confused by blockchain and quantum RE and what the, how they release equity, there's a great video on the website that I recommend worth watching because actually that will give you a good insight into how that economics side of things work. Thank you very much. You. Appreciate your time. And um, yeah, good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you've not already subscribed to our podcast, you can visit ratherinventive.com slash podcast and listen to it there. Or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or whatever podcast player you use. You can get in touch with me on Twitter, I'm at Ben Kinnaird, or the company on at Rather Inventive. Bye.